thank you to Mark and Audra and Ron and others for putting in the time and serving us this morning. You can open up to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Genesis 2. When we moved here to Michigan a couple of years ago in 2017, we bought a house in Southgate. And when we bought that house, there was a portion of a wall in between the kitchen and the dining room that was very oddly placed. And we thought, man, it sure would be nice to knock this portion of the wall down. Now, I don't know a lot about most things, and I certainly don't know a lot about building houses or knocking down walls in houses. I know you need a sledgehammer, and that's about the extent of my knowledge. But apparently, I came to learn that walls often in houses are load-bearing walls, which is a very important concept. Before we could remove that section of the wall, we had to determine if that portion of the wall was load-bearing. What that means, if you're like me, you didn't know this, is that if the wall is load-bearing, then it carries the weight of whatever's above it, whether that's the second story or whether that's the roof, and it transfers that weight down to the foundation. Now, if I said that wrong, please correct me afterwards, but that's my understanding of what's going on there. It, it holds the roof up, carries the, the weight down to the foundation, uh, and it's rather important. So when we were looking at this wall, I would, could not determine whether it was load-bearing or not, so people much smarter than me had to determine that. People like Kevin Johnson, Danny Knoll, and Zach Johnson and others had to look at it and assess the situation and determine if the wall was load-bearing. And ultimately, we determined that it was not load-bearing, um, and that seems to have been the right choice after living in the house for two years. And so I got the privilege of taking a sledgehammer to that wall and knocking it down. Uh, it was quite fun. But suppose that that wall would have been load-bearing and we made a mistake in our assessment. What would be the result of taking down a portion or the whole of a load-bearing wall? Well, you may not immediately see results if you knock down a load-bearing wall, but over time, things will begin to change in your house. You'll see cracks in the drywall. The ceiling will start to sag in obvious ways. Doors will start to stick because the ceiling and the drywall and the framing of the door is sagging and so it'll start to stick. And things will begin to change in your house. The structure has been fundamentally altered by taking down that wall and so things will not remain the same and in some cases, the house will completely collapse because of taking down that load-bearing wall. Now this morning, I want you to think of marriage as a load-bearing wall for our society and for our culture. Now when I say that, I don't think and I don't believe the narrative that sometimes is out there that the 1950s were sort of this golden age in American history and everything has been in the decline since then. Every aspect of culture and society, that's just not true. So don't buy into that narrative. And, and that's not what I'm trying to say this morning when I talk about marriage in our culture and in our society. But our culture's understanding of marriage has been 
shifting and changing in dramatic ways over the last 75 years. No-fault divorce laws changed. Those laws turned into the sexual revolution in the 60s and the 70s. And that has turned into the broad acceptance of same-sex marriage. And so the institution of marriage is fundamentally different than it was 75 years ago. Marriage rates have gone down. Less people are married now. People are waiting longer to get married. And maybe you think those are positive things, but the point is things have changed. Section by section, the load-bearing wall is being dismantled, and the structure of our culture cannot remain unchanged. Now, I'm talking big picture about our culture this morning, and out of love for neighbor, I am concerned about what's happening in our culture regarding marriage, but here's the thing. When we talk about the big picture of our culture, it can feel very easy, can feel very virtuous to talk in the abstract about the changes in marriage in our culture. And it can always be, it can be easy to talk about what's happening out there, people in the broader culture. And we never take what's happening out there and we think about our own marriages and our own lives and our own church and how our understanding of marriage has shifted as well. So I'm, I'm far more concerned with how the cultural change in our country has impacted the church. I'm certainly concerned about the broader culture, but I'm really concerned about what has happened in our churches, and in our church in particular, and in our own lives, for two reasons. It's very easy for Christians to sort of adopt the cultural understanding of marriage. it's It's a way of expressing worldliness, and we don't even realize we're doing it. We just live our lives in this culture, and the the view of marriage that is presented before us, we imbibe it, and we think that way, and our understanding of marriage begins to shift and change over time. It's nearly impossible for us to keep that from happening. At least some aspect of the changing views of marriage seeps into our lives. And I'm not just talking about accepting same-sex marriage. Obviously, that's concerning among people who profess to be Christians. But I'm talking about the other ways that the the views of marriage have changed and the way we adopt those views and begin to think like the world. The second reason that I'm concerned about the changes in marriage is because when the wall falls, when cracks appear in the wall, when the roof or the ceiling begins to sag, we're talking about not something in the abstract, but we're talking about real people's lives. People are impacted by this. People that you work with have been impacted by the changing views of marriage, the ease of divorce, the sexual revolution. People's lives have been shaped by this. And what has happened is the sexual revolution has promised a life of freedom and joy to people and said, this is the good life. And people have bought into that. And then they've realized down the line that this is a lie. And it's not true. And it doesn't produce freedom and joy. It can't deliver on that. And so I'm concerned about the shifting nature of marriage in our culture because, first of all, it impacts us. We have to be concerned that we're adopting the views of of marriage of the culture. But secondly, I'm concerned 
because people's lives around us are being broken and we have the truth. And we need to be ready to minister to people both within and without side of the body who've been impacted by the, the shifting cultural attitudes on marriage and sexuality. People will be broken and have been broken by this, and so we have to be ready to minister to them. And so what's our responsibility as a church? Our responsibility is to build biblical marriages within our church body, then to reach out to people outside of our church body who've been lied to by the culture concerning marriage and sexuality. So how do we do that? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we do both of those things, build healthy marriages within our church, reach out to people outside of the church body? How do we do both of those? We model and we proclaim the biblical story of marriage. We have to start here. We have to start by understanding the biblical story of marriage, what the Bible teaches about marriage, and then we model that within our own lives, and then we proclaim that to those outside of the church body. And I want to reintroduce you to that story this morning in Genesis chapter 2. So if you're not there, Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 24 and 25 this morning, and we're going to launch from there, try to cover quite a bit of ground this morning. So what we're going to see this morning is four chapters in the story, the biblical story of marriage. Four chapters in the biblical story of marriage. And my goal is for these chapters to help us to build and to model Christ-honoring marriages. So four chapters in the biblical story of marriage that help us to build and model Christ-honoring marriages. Now, the first one of these I'm going to call normal marriage. <laughs> normal marriage. Maybe some of you are seeing this and you're thinking, my marriage is anything but normal. <laughs> And maybe you're also thinking, I've actually never encountered a normal marriage. <laughs> Fair enough. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But keep in mind, and the reason I'm calling this normal marriage here is intentional. It's on purpose because Genesis 2, 24 and 25 are before the fall into sin. And so this is a portion of the creation story, as we talked about last week, that, that comes before sin entered into the world. And before sin entered the world, over and over again, when God creates things, he calls everything that he has created good. And so what these chapters tell us, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us this is the way things are supposed to be. This is how God intends it to be. And so I'm calling this normal marriage because this is the ideal. This is the paradigm for what marriage is supposed to look like. And we see that this is the ideal from Jesus himself. Jesus understands what is explained in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 to be the ideal. And he talks about this in Matthew 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it on the screen. But the Pharisees come to him and they ask him about divorce. And Jesus responds by going back to this passage and using this passage as a paradigm for the way things are supposed to be. Look at the language. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, this is 
Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus's point here is that this is how marriage is designed to function. Listen also to verses seven and eight. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, what God has created, the creational design that he gives us in Genesis 2, we should not tamper with it. This is the way things are supposed to be. And so God's created order is not just descriptive. It's not just telling us how things were. God's created order is prescriptive. It's telling us how things should be. And if this is prescriptive, then we have to ask, what do we find concerning normal marriage? What is the description of normal marriage in Genesis 2, 24 and 25? three elements. I want to give you three elements of normal marriage, all right? First of all, in normal marriage, in the ideal, in the paradigm here, the man and the woman have unique roles in the marriage. In Genesis 2, it's very clear that the man was created first. And you might think, well, that doesn't really matter. Well, the New Testament actually uses the created order to say the man has the role of the leader or the head in the marriage. But that doesn't mean he's more important, of course. We saw last week, look back at Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word helper is used of God and his help of Israel. And so later on in in the Pentateuch, So we're not talking about a subordinate here. We're not talking about someone who's less important. They're sort of an add-on or a, a, a helper as a servant would be. What we're talking about here is someone who completes the man. She provides what is lacking in him. And so the two come together and work together. And this is God's design. You'll notice here too that the roles of the man and the woman in marriage, the man as the leader, as the head, are not a result of the fall. They precede the fall, and this is God's created design. It's a gift of goodness for the man and the woman. So that's the first element of marriage. The roles within marriage are God's good design. They're part of normal marriage. The second element of normal marriage, though, is that God's gift of marriage shows us the significance of the family in God's purposes. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but we talked about God's purposes, his task that he gives to human beings. And when we talked about that, the man and the woman were to fill the earth. They were to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers. That was, surprisingly enough, that was a primary piece of God's plan and his design for them. And so his intention was for marriage to result in children, and for family to be among the most important relationships that people enter into. 
So as you go on through Scripture, you see that family, I think beginning here, family and, and spreading throughout Scripture is the primary vehicle of training, of instruction, and of discipleship of children in the ways of God. So what does that mean for us today? Parents, the church cannot and should not replace the discipleship of your children. You are the primary discipler of your children. Now, certainly the church comes alongside and equips you to do that ministry in your home, but you are the primary discipler of your children. You are the one, I am the one, who is to train them in biblical truth and to equip them with a biblical worldview and understanding of sin and the gospel and all of that. So that's the second element. Marriage results in family, and the significance of the family really can't be overstated in God's plans for the earth. Now, the third piece of this is maybe the most important. The third element of normal marriage is that God intended marriage to be a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. Look at chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what happens in marriage here is you have two sides of the same action, right? Leaving father and mother and holding fast to his wife. Now, of course, in this passage here, Adam didn't have a father and mother to leave, to depart from, but this verse is serving as a paradigm. This is setting us up for the rest of our understanding of marriage in Scripture. And so this leaving here indicates that the man's parents are no longer his primary relationship on earth, which is kind of amazing. I mean, they gave him life, right? But when he enters into this relationship with the woman, now this relationship is his primary relationship on earth. He's to leave them and hold fast to his wife. That's the other side of the coin here. It's the other side of the action of becoming a covenant relationship. So what happens here when he holds, holds fast to his wife? Think of two pieces of wood that are glued together with an incredibly strong wood glue. When you glue those two pieces of wood together, you cannot separate those pieces anymore. They become one piece of glue. And if you try to rip those pieces apart, they will splinter and they will shatter. and It'll cause serious issues. And so what you have here is the holding fast suggests that there is a permanence to this relationship. And I think it also suggests there's a passion, an emotional attachment to this relationship. And so all of that gives us the result in the end of verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. They're glued together. Now it's not two lives, but it's one life that comes together. They share everything. Life events. They share their bodies. They share their resources. They share their struggles. They share their victories. They share their joys and their sorrows. So the divine norm, according to verse 24, is that marriage is a covenant 
relationship. Now notice, I keep saying the word covenant. I'm not saying the word contract because those are two different things. And I'm afraid that one of the ways that the culture has shaped our understanding of marriage is by having us think of marriage as a contract rather than a covenant. This would be the major difference between a biblical understanding of marriage and a cultural understanding of marriage. Our culture thinks of marriage as a contract that two people can enter into. So what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Maybe you've not even thought of those two words as indicating anything different at all. Well, a contract is something I signed recently when I had an egress window put into my house. So what happens when you sign a contract? I'm confident most of you have signed a contract before. A contract is for a limited period of time. It's dealing with specific actions and it's based on the performance of each party involved in the contract. So I agree to pay money to this company. They agree to install the window in my house. We both agree to perform our stipulations as a part of the contract. It's for a limited action, for a limited period of time, dealing with specific things that we're both going to do. And if you think about that description of a contract, that's really what marriage has become in our culture. It's become a contract between two people. It's a performance-based relationship for maybe a limited period of time, and we both agree to do certain things within that relationship. That's not the paradigm that Genesis sets for marriage. Biblically speaking, marriage is a covenant. And all the language here helps us to understand that. Leaving and cleaving, holding fast, one flesh, all of that is covenantal language. So what's, what's a covenant? Well, a contract is between two people, but a covenant adds a third party to that. And that third party is God. And now the relationship has gone to a whole different level. It's a promise to each other, a permanent promise, but it's also a promise to each other in the presence of God. And so now the relationship is not dealing with specific actions. Now it's a sacred bond that involves all of life, every area of life. A covenant binds two people together. It glues them together for a lifetime. It's not conditional. It's permanent. It's unconditional. And that's why verse 25 is true of a marriage covenant, but not a contract. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's not based on performance anymore. They are completely open with each other. And we talked about this last week. Obviously, this is talking about physically being naked at this situation, but it's also talking about every other aspect of their relationship. There was no conflict. They were not ashamed. There was no guilt. There was a free sharing of everything they had with each other. They were glued together permanently here. They didn't have to do anything to earn each other's love to stay in love because it's a covenant. There will be times the emotions will go up and down, no doubt, but 
It's a covenant. It's permanent. It's not a contract. And so all of that is a broad outline. There's more certainly that we could say, but that's a broad outline of the creational norm for marriage. And here's what I would say to to try to wrap all of that up together. Marriage is a covenantal bond entered into by one man and one woman for life with each fulfilling their unique roles as they pursue God's mission together. Marriage is a covenantal bond between one man and one woman for life with each fulfilling their unique roles as they pursue God's mission together. But here's the problem. I'm talking this morning to a room full of people who don't have normal marriages. (laughs) Me included. We don't live up to this paradigm. We can't live up to this paradigm. And so to understand our experience of marriage and our understanding of marriage, the covenant of marriage this morning, we have to talk about the second chapter in the biblical story. This is the norm for marriage, but unfortunately, there has been a bending of marriage. Bent marriage is the second chapter in this story. So we've talked at length before about how sin is the bending and breaking of all that is good. And we'll see this as we get into Genesis chapter 3. But if sin is the bending and breaking of all that is good, then this glorious norm for marriage is certainly impacted by sin. It's been impacted by the fall. And man, you can see this right away in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, it's uncanny how quickly this naked and not ashamed relationship, this covenantal relationship begins to have cracks in it. Look down at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. The woman takes the fruit and eats it, and apparently, as she was doing this, the man was standing passively nearby without leading, without fulfilling his role, without protecting her, without keeping her from the deception of the serpent. He's not doing what he was called to do within the marriage relationship. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The unhindered freedom that they experienced with one another has been shattered, and now they're desperately trying to cover themselves up because they're very aware of their sin. God confronts Adam about what has happened, and what does Adam do? He immediately blames his wife. So much for an unhindered, unbroken relationship. That doesn't exactly get things off on the right foot, for sure. Then, as you go on, you already see these cracks, but then you get to the curses in Genesis 3 that God puts on the man, the woman, the serpent, and creation, and we find that these curses deal specifically with the marriage relationship. At least one of them does. Verse verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what he's saying here is family life is going to be dramatically impacted by the fall. 
it's going to be bent away from what it should be. And we'll get into these in more detail, but let's just really quickly look at a couple things from verse 16. I think the pain that he describes here in childbearing means more than just it will hurt when you have a baby. I mean, that certainly is a part of it. There's going to be pain in bringing forth a child. But I think one of the things that he means here, and we'll look at this in more detail, is that women will now have difficulty in conceiving. There's going to be miscarriages. They're not going to be able to get pregnant. That's a result of the fall here. And you see that fleshed out in the book of Genesis. Over and over again, women have trouble getting pregnant. And that causes difficulty, even difficulty in relationships between the man and the woman. But also notice in verse 16, the second part of this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, rather than being unashamed and open with each other, there's going to be conflict in the relationship. And both sides of this are going to enter into this conflict in different ways. Men now, we see, are going to use and abuse their responsibility of headship. I mean, how often do you see over the centuries men dominating and domineering women and exploiting women? That's the result of the fall. And so men are now going to do this, and it brings conflict into this what should be open covenantal relationship. So men are going to dominate women. And the other side of it is, rather than being a servant leader and proactively taking care of and protecting women, the other side is men passively fail to lead women. They abdicate their responsibility as the husband, and they just sort of take their hands off. And they don't lead. And they don't provide for On the other side, with women, the conflict shows itself by either a clinging dependence on the man or an outright rejection of his servant leadership. Now, those are broad, big categories, and every marriage is going to express this conflict in different ways. But that's the point, is that now, rather than being a normal marriage as God intended it, now marriages are bent and they're difficult, and there's conflict, and there's struggle. Every marriage now, including yours, including mine, is a coming together of two people who are bent and sinful. There's no way around that. And if you read the next few chapters of Genesis, this hits you in the face. Once you get into Genesis chapter 4, you bump into this guy named Lamech, and Lamech marries two women. It's the first time you see that in Scripture. And I think the author intends us to read that as a bad thing. And I think he intends us to read that as an arrogant, domineering expression of male headship. This guy takes two wives rather than one woman for himself. And then this guy brags about murdering Cain. If you go on, you read in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham lies about his wife and gets her in an incredibly sticky situation just to save his own skin. Continue reading in the story of Abraham, and in Genesis 16, Abraham sleeps with his female servant out of his wife's suggestion. And that creates a whole host of difficulties. Good grief. You can read about those. (laughs) But I mean, the point is, 
you read on in the book of Genesis, and it is all over the place. Marriage is no longer what it was in Genesis chapter 2. There's conflict, difficulty, strife. The point is, is that we all now live with bent souls, and those bent souls come together in a covenant relationship, and it's difficult at times. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story of marriage in the Bible. We all live there, but that's not the end. And that brings us to our third chapter, redeemed marriage. So we have normal marriage, bent marriage, and then redeemed marriage. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth to undo the damage that has been done and to set what is bent straight again. One of my favorite passages regarding his work is this, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But I love this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Everything that Satan fostered in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus comes to destroy his work and to make things right. This certainly applies to the marriage relationship. All the stuff you see in Genesis of conflict between husband and wife, domineering men, manipulating you know, women, whatever it may be, Jesus comes to undo that and to set it right. And so if you're a believer in Christ this morning, then your marriage becomes one of the primary vehicles that God is using for your sanctification and to make you like Jesus Christ. And so it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can all change to better reflect what we read in Genesis 2. If that's the paradigm, then through the Holy Spirit, we are being shaped to better conform our marriages to that paradigm. We can live out our God-ordained roles. Guys, you can become a humble servant leader who takes the initiative for your family spiritually and who isn't domineering. We can pursue God's purposes and plans for family life and for work. We can love one another passionately and permanently in the covenant relationship that we've entered into. And what's amazing as you get into the New Testament is you've got Paul and other New Testament writers instructing people on what it looks like to live after you've been saved. And so much of the time, they specifically target the marriage relationship. And they say one of the results of being married is that your marriage now begins to reflect what you read about in Genesis chapter 2. You change. You grow. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but Colossians chapter 3 is a great example of this. At the beginning of Colossians 3, he says, if you were raised with Christ, if you have new life in Christ, and then in verses 5 through 11 of that chapter, he tells you what to put off, vices that you put off, and then in verse 12 through 16, he tells you what to put on, and then when you get to later in the chapter, he starts to address husband and wife relationships. Because your salvation, my salvation, has massive implications for our marriage relationships. The reality is that Jesus came precisely because I'm not a perfect husband. Because Bethany is not a perfect wife. 
And I know this morning, even as I'm talking this through, that there are some of you who feel like, feel guilty, you feel weighed down, and you, because you failed to live up to the paradigm. You're looking at normal marriage in Genesis 2, and you're going, I, I didn't do that in my first marriage, and I'm struggling to do that now. That's precisely why Jesus came. He came to set it right. He came because your marriage failed. He came because your current marriage is hard, because your husband doesn't take leadership. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to set things right. He came to sanctify you and to sanctify me through this process of being married. He came to forgive all of our failures in this area. He came to free us from guilt and from shame. That includes every marriage failure. And what's amazing about all of this is our last chapter regarding marriage. Because it's Christ's love expressed in the gospel that is the defining reality of marriage. That's what ultimately sets the course for each and every marriage. That is why marriage exists in the first place. And you can't understand your marriage without understanding the last chapter of this, purposeful marriage. What is marriage for ultimately? Ephesians chapter 5, you can turn there. Ephesians 5, that's where we'll end up this morning. But you can't understand your marriage unless you understand what your marriage is for ultimately and that it's for something so much bigger than you. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul begins drawing a comparison between human marriage and between Christ's love for the church. All right, so comparison. That's what I want you to think about as I read this passage to you, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, I want you to notice very specifically what Paul does here in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know that verse. That's Genesis 2, 24. That's where we started this morning. He's quoting that passage. Now look what he does in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he says this mystery is profound, and what he says is this passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that passage actually is written about Christ in the church. 
the meaning of that passage is that it's about Jesus and his relationship to the church. That's what it's actually speaking about there. In other words, here's what I think Paul is getting at. I think every, Paul's saying, every human marriage, yours and mine included, is a picture frame. And it's a picture frame that's meant to adorn and to point to the true picture in the middle, which is the covenant love between Jesus and his bride, the church. Every marriage is to point to the love of Jesus for his church. Your marriage, my marriage, is not ultimately about my happiness or my satisfaction. It's primarily about pointing to and illuminating and putting on display the love of Jesus for his bride. Ultimately, that's why God created marriage. God didn't look at marriage and say, ooh, that's a neat analogy to the way Jesus loves his church. He created marriage in order to showcase the love as a reflection of the love of Jesus and his church, to help us understand the covenantal love between Christ and his church. And so what that does is it gives marriage a sacred weight. There's something significant to your marriage because of this. You're not just living life day in and day out. Now your relationship is pointing to something much bigger than you. You and I do not exist for ourselves. We are here as representatives of the covenantal love of Jesus for his church. And that has all sorts of implications for the way we live out our marriages, doesn't it? And that's exactly what Paul's describing in this passage. Why does he make all these applications? Husbands, love your wives. Give yourself up for them, right? Like, why does he do all of this? Because marriage is to point to Jesus and his church. I want to end by giving you three specific applications of marriage to our marriage lives today because we are pointing to Christ and his church. First of all, our culture downplays the significance and importance of marriage. It's one of the things you see around us. But when you understand that your marriage is pointing to Christ and his church, this lifts marriage out of the cheap displays that we see around us. And it puts your marriage on a pedestal and says this is significant and important. Second application, marriage lives in the context of grace because the relationship between Jesus and his bride is completely and totally based on grace. Everything about The reason that the bride, the church, is related to Jesus is based on the gift of grace that he gives. It's born out of grace. Grace is the blood running through the veins of that relationship, and it's the blood running through the veins of our marriages. And so because of that, the roles of marriage are defined by the gospel. So as the husband leads He leads out of servant leadership and care and concern and sacrifice for his bride. His leadership is to reflect Christ's love and care and concern for his bride. And as the wife submits and follows, it reflects Christ's submission to the Father. And so both husband and wife 
live out of the gospel and their relationship and the way they handle themselves is formed by the work of Jesus on the cross. So Tim and Kathy Keller say that each member in a marriage plays the Jesus role. We both imitate him in the various aspects of his work. And so all of that brings us full circle back to Genesis 2, the norm for marriage. It's ultimately meant to point to something bigger. It's a gift in life that we enjoy. It's a benefit to us. And there's no greater relationship that we enter into. But despite marriage being that significant for earthly life, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more important than that. And so let's drink deeply at this biblical understanding of marriage so that we can build healthy marriages within our church body and then we can reach out to others who have been beaten up and lied to by the sexual revolution, by the culture's understanding of marriage, and we can present a model that is compelling and filled with grace and attractive to those outside of the church body. And when we do that, it is all for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ and the covenant love that he has for his church. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the gift of marriage, and we pray that you would help this biblical understanding of marriage to sink deep into who we are, that we would build healthy marriages, and that we would model what a biblical marriage looks like so that we can better reflect your character and your love. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and through his grace. Amen.